Section 18 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Section 18. Edward de Vere as Lyric Poet. In proceeding from an examination of Shakespeare's work to search for the man himself, we made lyric poetry the starting point and the crucial consideration in attempting to establish his identity. Similarly, in reversing the process, that is to say, in proceeding a priori from Edward de Vere to the work of Shakespeare, which must be the longest and most decisive section of the argument, we again begin with lyric poetry we take the lyric poetry of edward de vere and see how far it justifies the theory of his being the real shakespeare up to the present we have had before us the single poem and few odd lines of oxford's supported by the testimony of the dictionary of national biography it becomes necessary first of all to obtain further testimony as to his poetic powers and characteristics and then to see to what extent others of his poems warrant his being chosen as the writer of shakespeare's work in the cambridge history of english literature volume four page one sixteen the section being written by harold h child sometime scholar of brazenose oxford there occurs the following reference to a collection of poems called the phoenix nest the Earl of Oxford has a charming lyric. Most of the other contributors are simply enumerated. Oxford, however, it will be noticed, is singled out for special compliment. Again, we would draw special attention to the following excerpts from the History of English Poetry, Volume 2, pages 312 to 313, by W. J. Courthope, C.B., M.A., D. Litt, Professor of Poetry at the University of Oxford. Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, a great patron of literature. His own verses are distinguished for their wit and terse ingenuity. His studied concinnity of style is remarkable. He was not only witty himself, but the cause of wit in others. Doubtless he was proud of his illustrious ancestry. He was careful in verse, at any rate, to conform to the external requirements of chivalry, but in later years his turn for epigram seems to have prevailed over his chivalrous sentiments. It is interesting to notice, in passing, that he is described in words that Shakespeare puts into the mouth of Falstaff, I am not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in others. Henry the Fourth, Act One, Scene Two. In another passage in the same work, we are told that the court literateurs were divided into two parties, one headed by Philip Sidney and the other by the Earl of Oxford, a great favorer of the Euphuists and himself a poet of some merit in the courtly Italian vein. This rivalry between Philip Sidney and the Earl of Oxford touches our problem somewhat closely and will have to be referred to later. It is important at present as affording testimony to Oxford's recognized poetic eminence and to his Italian affinities. It also comes as a reminder that it was to Oxford that Lilly dedicated his Euphues and his England and affords a sufficient explanation of that familiarity with Euphuism which is noted in Shakespeare, if we credit Oxford with being Shakespeare, but is very difficult to account for in William Shakespeare of Stratford. There remains one other striking fact connected with these references to the Earl of Oxford in Professor Courthope's work. It will be remembered that we took the form of the stanza in Venus and Adonis as our first guide in the search. Now Professor Courthope 
quotes three separate stanzas of oxford's work and all these are identical with that of shakespeare's venus and oxford's on women which gave us our first point of contact the poem on which we had alighted was therefore no isolated effort in that particular form of versification it was a familiar and practiced form in which he evidently excelled just as had been noticed in the case of shakespeare in collecting corroboration of de vere's poetic eminence it is specially fitting that the testimony of so eminent a poet as edmund spencer second only to shakespeare in that poetic age should be added in the series of sonnets with which he prefaces the fairy queen there is one addressed to the earl of oxford wherein occurs the following passage the antique glory of thine ancestry and eke thine own long-living memory succeeding them in true nobility and also for the love which thou dost bear to the heliconian imps and they to thee they unto thee and thou to them most dear valuable as is the testimony which we have adduced it cannot absolve us from the necessity of knowing the poems themselves and of subjecting them to very careful examination for this must form the crux of a very great deal of future investigation it is greatly to be regretted therefore that these poems have not been readily accessible to every one for the most part they have been scattered amongst various anthologies a mode of publishing poetry characteristic of the elizabethan age dr grossart however in eighteen seventy two gathered together all of the extant recognized poems of the earl of oxford and published them in the fuller worthies library some of these poems had appeared in old anthologies others had only existed in manuscript and were published for the first time by dr grossart it is desirable therefore that all who are interested in english literature may before long be in possession of the entire collection there are in all only twenty-two short poems dr grossart numbers them up to twenty-three but number eight is omitted and the biographical introduction is possibly the shortest with which any similar collection was ever presented to the world it explains its own brevity however and is of great significance from the point of view of this inquiry an unlifted shadow he remarks lies across his memory park in his edition of royal and noble authors has done his utmost but that utmost is meagre our collection of his poems he concludes will prove a pleasant surprise it is believed to most of our readers they are not without touches of the true singer and there is an atmosphere of graciousness and culture about them that is grateful we have already in the chapter in which we described the search had to mention the contemporary testimonies of maris puttingham and webb and also a modern authority sir sidney lee maris and puttingham deal specifically with his dramatic preeminence mentioning him as amongst the best for comedy therefore leaving this on one side and confining ourselves to his lyric credentials we may sum up the matter thus contemporary one edmund spencer one most dear to the muses two webb best of the courtier poets in the rare devices of poetry the most excellent amongst the rest modern one sir sidney lee corroborates webb's statement much lyric beauty two professor w j courthope c b m a d lit consinuous terse ingenious epigrammatic leader of a party of poets three cambridge history of english literature harold h child charming for dr grossert gracious cultured true singer 
looking over the notes appended to the separate poems of dr grossert's collection we find that these poems fulfill one very important condition which at the outset we imagine would belong to the lyric work which shakespeare might have published in his own name notwithstanding the rare ability they show and several true shakespearean characteristics they are for the most part early poems many of them are proved to have been in existence when the writer was about twenty-six years of age how long before that time they were in existence or how many others which are not so attested may also have existed then we cannot say the most of these others and it is only a small collection to begin with bear unmistakable internal evidence of belonging to the same early period moreover de vere is spoken of as the best of the courtier poets of the early part of queen elizabeth's reign as however he lived right on to the end of the reign and into the reign of james i it is evident that the poetry for which he is celebrated is regarded as belonging to his early life direct corroboration of this theory is found in the following passage from arthur collins historical collections of noble families published in seventeen fifty two he edward de vere was in his younger days an excellent poet and comedian as several of his compositions which were made public showed which i presume are now lost or worn out now the assumption with which we set out was that if we found writings under the true name of the author of shakespeare's works it would be mainly his early works issued prior to his assuming a disguise as we examine this early poetry of de vere it becomes impossible to believe that a writer possessed of the genius that these verses manifest could possibly have stopped producing early in his manhood unless of course he had suddenly dropped his literary interests and directed his energies into another channel with de vere however the continuance or rather the intensification of his literary interests in later years is amply proved he was sharing the bohemian life of literary men he was running his own company of play-actors some of the plays which they were staging were quite understood to be from his own pen and although he is spoken of as the best in comedy we are also told that none of his plays have survived that they have become lost or worn out the actual amount of poetry which is recognized as his is such as one with such a faculty might have written within a single twelvemonth although his contemporary says that in the rare devices of poetry he may be considered the most excellent amongst the rest it is evident therefore that in edward de vere we have a writer of both drama and lyric poetry who published under his own name only a small part of what he produced however he may have disposed of the remainder this point will receive further corroboration when we come to deal with the relationship of the poet spencer to our problem everything points to his having after the first period of poetic output deliberately thrown a veil over his subsequent work whilst in shakespeare we have a writer who we are justified in supposing assumed anonymity in his maturity leading off with an elaborate and highly finished poem of about two hundred stanzas these two facts alone in work of such exceptional character if not simply the counterparts one of the other constitutes alone one of the most remarkable coincidences in the history of literature when to this we add the fact that the dates in the respective cases are such as to fit in exactly with the theory of one work being but the continuation of the other oxford being as has been remarked about forty when the shakespearean dramas began to appear and having filled in the interim with just the kind of experiences necessary to enable him to produce the dramas it is difficult to resist the conviction on this ground alone that it is indeed but one writer with whom we are dealing 
and so far as that mysteriousness is concerned which we attributed to shakespeare it must be admitted that the sudden non-appearance of work from such a pen as that of de vere's is as mysterious as the subsequent appearance of the shakespeare poems and dramas now although the authority we have quoted for edward de vere's poetic eminence may appear ample there is nevertheless a special caution to be observed in regard to it assuming that he is the author of shakespeare's plays it will still be necessary to distinguish between his work as edward de vere and his work as shakespeare the former belonging mainly to his early manhood and the latter to his maturity we must expect to find a corresponding difference in the work how vast may be the difference between a man's early and his later literary style can be seen by contrasting carlyle's first literary essays with sartor or his french revolution we must not therefore expect to find oxford rank spontaneously with shakespeare especially as the shakespearean work is primarily dramatic whereas we have not a scrap of dramatic work published under the name of oxford all that we are entitled to expect is some marked correspondence in the domain of lyric poetry and a reasonable promise of the shakespearean work in general of these we have at least some evidence in the verses already quoted and in the testimony that experts have offered as to the distinctive qualities of his poetry there is however another very important fact to be taken into consideration between the time when edward de vere produced his earliest poems and the period of the production of the shakespearean dramas roughly the interval between fifteen eighty and fifteen ninety a very marked change had come over the character of english literature as a whole the nature of this change can best be gathered from the following passage from dean church's life of spencer the ten years from fifteen eighty to fifteen ninety present a picture of english poetry of which though there are gleams of a better hope the general character is feebleness fantastic absurdity affectation and bad taste who could suppose what was preparing under it all but the dawn was at hand during the next ten years fifteen ninety to sixteen hundred there burst forth suddenly a new poetry which with its reality depth sweetness and nobleness took the world captive the poetical aspirations of the englishmen of the time had found at last adequate interpreters and their own national and unrivalled expression this vital change then was preparing in england between the time when edward de vere produced his early poetry and the time when the shakespearean dramas appeared such a change in the national literature we must naturally expect to find reflected in some degree in his writings the roots of the matter may however be even deeper than this in making the contrast between the two periods dean church cites philip sidney's defense of poesy as representing the earlier and feebler period and the rude playhouses with their troops of actors most of them profligate and disreputable as being the source of the later and more virile movement now the ten years mentioned by dean church corresponds generally to what we shall speak of as the middle period of the life of edward de vere as a writer it is the period immediately following upon his first poetic output and it was during these years that he was in active and habitual association with these very troops of play actors whilst the third period of his life synchronizes exactly with the sudden outbursts of the great shakespearean dramas in his first literary period he is recognized chief of a party of court poets and the rival of philip sidney as to who his fellows were there is very little information to be had if however we compare his poetry with the work of sidney we can only account for sidney's being considered in any sense a rival by the fact that the feeble affected style of sidney was in vogue at the time 
what distinguishes oxford's work from contemporary verse is its strength reality and true refinement when philip sidney learnt to look into his heart and write he only showed that he had at last learnt a lesson that his rival had been teaching him the reader may or may not be able to agree with the ideas and sentiments expressed by oxford but he will be unable to deny that every line written by the poet is a direct and real expression of himself in terms at once forceful and choice and no mere reflection of some fashionable prose even in these early years he was the pioneer of realism in english poetry in his middle period he was a leading force in those dramatic circles from which was to emerge the realist literature so aptly characterized by dean church so that whoever the real author of shakespeare's works may have been that work represents the triumph of the de vere spirit in poetry over the movement which claims sidney as its head it will also be the triumph of his matured conceptions over his youthful compliance with the conventional standards in so far as he may have complied with them some measure of such compliance being almost inevitable in youth we have already had to remark his restiveness under all kinds of restraints imposed by the artificiality of court life and his strong bent toward that bohemian society within which were stirring the energetic forces making for reality mingled with much evil in life and literature having been preeminent amongst the lyric poets in his early years and prominent in the dramatic movement of his middle period he is the natural representative and probably even the personal embodiment and original source of the transition by which the lyric poetry of the early days of queen elizabeth was merged in the drama of elizabeth's and his own later years and before he died he witnessed the beginning of the decline of that great dramatic and literary efflorescence these matters we believe to have a profound significance in relation to the problem before us when the necessary matter is readily accessible to the public it ought to be possible to read these verses of de vere's alongside such contemporary poems as appear in dr grossert's volumes then their distinctive qualities will be more than ever apparent poems by sir edward dyer lord vaux the earl of essex and others such as may be found in the fuller worthy's library though by no means mediocre or negligible lack the distinctiveness of de vere's poetry and fail to grip and hold the mind in the same way as do these early productions of the earl of oxford that terse epigrammatic style on which all readers comment is the index of a mind that sees things in sharply defined outline and fastens itself firmly on to realities this being further assisted by a complete mastery over the resources of the language employed so that ideas do not have to force themselves through clouds of words if to these qualities we add an intense sensibility to all kinds of external impressions and a faculty of passionate response brought to the service of clear intellectual perceptions we shall have seized hold of the outstanding features of de vere's mentality the result is the production of poems which impress the mind with a sense of their unity the ideas cohere following one another in a natural sequence and leave in the reader's mind a sense of completeness and artistic finish that this concinnity is characteristic of shakespeare's mind and work needs no insisting on at the present day it is one of the distinctive marks of the individual sonnets of shakespeare and we fear a much rarer feature of reflective poems than it ought to be the lack of it being responsible for that distressing feeling of jumpiness so frequently experienced in reading works of this order 
in this matter of cohesion and unity we have certainly met with no similar correspondence between shakespeare and any other of the many elizabethan poets whose work we have been constrained to read in the course of this inquiry nor any other poet with the same vast range of sentiment between charming love lyric and violently passionate verses again as there are no hazy atmospheres about the images which such a mind employs and no words are wasted in struggling to define we get quite a wealth of images presented to the mind in rapid succession in reading the poems of de vere as in reading the works of shakespeare one lives in a world of similes and metaphors in both cases there is a wealth of appropriate classical allusions but this is mingled harmoniously with an equal wealth of illustration drawn from the common experiences and what appear to be like personal pursuits of life allied possibly to these mental qualities is the color consciousness which is also observable in both groups of writings there is also the attendant sensibility to the flowers the favorite flowers in both cases being to the lily the rose and the violet turning from these mental indications to the matter of moral dispositions we find in the poems the impress of a character quite above what one would gather either from the biography in the dictionary of national biography or from the scattered references to him in other works there is moreover in addition to the poems in dr gossert's collection a letter written by the earl of oxford and attached to one of the poems which gives us a glimpse into the nature of the man himself as he was in those early years whatever may have been the pose he was thought fit to adopt in dealing with some of the men about elizabeth's court this letter bears ample testimony to the generosity and largeness of his disposition the clearness and sobriety of his judgment and the essential manliness of his actions and bearing toward literary men whom he considered worthy of encouragement his poems may in measure reflect the mannerisms of his day but in the letter we get a glimpse of the man himself and if he comes to be acclaimed as shakespeare this letter will be an invaluable treasure as the first and it may prove the only shakespearean letter bearing upon literary manners and cast in literary form if we accept the dedications of his poems to southampton the fragments we get of oxford's letters in the calendared state papers and other contemporary manuscripts are generally in a formal business cast with only occasional poetic or literary flashes as a letter it is of course prose but it is the prose of a genuine poet its terse ingenuity wealth of figurative speech and even its musical quality being almost as marked as they are in his verse we subjoin a few passages asking the reader to consider that the writer was but twenty-six years old when the letter was published it has reference to a translation that had been submitted to him though apparently not intended for publication but which was published by his orders presumably therefore at his expense after i had perused your letters good master bedingfield finding them in your request far differing from the desert of your labor i could not choose but greatly doubt whether it were better for me to yield to your desire or execute mine own intentions towards the publishing of your book at length i determined it were better to deny your unlawful request than to grant or condescend to the concealment of so worthy a work whereby as you have been profited in the translating so many may reap knowledge by the reading of the same what doth it avail a mass of gold to be continually imprisoned in your bags and never to be employed to your use i do not doubt even you so think of your studies and delightful muses what do they avail if you do not participate them to others what doth avail the vine unless another delighteth in the grape what doth avail the rose unless another took pleasure in the smell why should this man be esteemed more than another but for his virtue through which every man desireth to be accounted of and in mine opinion 
as it beautifieth a fair woman to be decked with pearls and precious stones so much more it ornifieth a gentleman to be furnished in mind with glittering virtues wherefore considering the small harm i do to you what great good i do to others i prefer mine own intention to discover your volume before your request to secret the same wherein i may seem to you to play the part of the cunning and expert mediciner so you being sick of so much doubt in your own proceedings through which infirmity you are desirous to bury your work in the grave of oblivion yet i am nothing dainty to deny your request i shall erect you such a monument that in your lifetime you shall see how noble a shadow of your virtuous life shall remain when you are dead and gone thus earnestly desiring you not to repugn the setting forth of your proper studies from your loving and assured friend e oxford we ask our readers to familiarize themselves thoroughly with the diction of this letter and then to read the dedication of venus and adonis so similar is the style that it is hardly necessary to make any allowance for the seventeen intervening years whilst then we find him paying high compliments to a literary man from whom he could expect no return at the time when others were penning extravagant eulogies to the queen we have not a single line of poetry from the pen of oxford ministering to the royal vanity and this notwithstanding the high place he undoubtedly held in the queen's regards and her indulgence of what seemed to others like a provocative wilfulness in him this absence of compliments to royalty is also characteristic of the shakespeare work and has been the occasion for much surprised comment reviewing the present chapter as a whole it will be recognized that to the remarkable set of resemblances with which we dealt in the last chapter must now be added an equally remarkable set of correspondences in the general literary situation and in the leading characteristics of shakespeare's and de vere's writings and when the value of the authorities cited is duly weighed it will be readily conceded that whatever may be said for the rest of the argument it cannot be urged that in dealing with the question of shakespearean honors we are inviting the public to consider the claims of one who can be lightly brushed aside as in any way out of the running end of section 18